0: On the podcast, we often feature different examples of technology solutions that have the potential to address meaningful problems in healthcare. We've talked a lot about telehealth and remote monitoring and artificial intelligence and interoperability and everything else. But like we've said a few times on the show before, the big problems that need solving in healthcare that relate to technology, they're not always about the blue sky, fancy pants solutions that are cool and novel in their approach, the things that we need to address are the real world day-to-day issues. And those that are doing the day-to-day in healthcare are often nurses, midwives, and clinicians. So how important is it that nurses and midwives, for example, have a clear pathway on their digital health journey? Spoiler alert, it's very important. So in this episode, I'm chatting today with Digital Health OG, Angela Ryan, and today we're talking about the digital health workforce of the future, digital health safety governance and much, much more. Collaboration starts with the Conversation Team Health Tech, let's make it happen.
1: Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology.
0: With me today is Angela Ryan. She's worked within the Australian health system for more than 30 years in senior leadership, executive, and clinical roles across federal, state, and local settings. She's a health informatician and digital health strategist, a clinician, executive, and a lot of other things too. Hey, Angela, how are you going? Hey, Pete, good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining, and it's great to finally connect one of those names and faces that... We see and never really connect too often in a meaningful way, like passing ships in the night. So it's great to be able to connect with you on the podcast today. It'd be great to firstly get a bit more context from you and learn a little bit about your background and yourself. Can you tell us a bit more about you, please, Angela?
1: I'm so glad you asked. Like you said, I've been around for a pretty long time. So I've been in the health system, in and around the health system for more than 30 years. I did start out as a registered nurse in critical care, and I think that was a perfect environment for me because it enabled me to blend not just my, I guess, love of, well, frontline care, but also technology. And that's sort of where my interest in digital health really started to take off. And I guess I haven't looked back really, so that while I was in frontline healthcare for many years, I did manage to make that transition, and that's where I continued to keep my focus I'm certainly like you said in your introduction I've worked at the local the state and the federal level and I guess I wouldn't really change a thing. My skin's gone a little bit thicker over that time with those exposures but also it's taught me a lot about not just about the health system but about myself so I think if I consider my mission in life it's really about doing what I can individually to transform the health system through digital health. So it's something one needs to be very patient with.
0: Definitely. I agree with you on that one. And it's great that you've got that clinical background and expertise to apply and understand the real world setting too. And as we're talking about in this episode, we're focusing a fair bit today on workforce and health workforce and being a show about technology and healthcare, bringing those two things together. So from your perspective, when you think about The workforce for healthcare of the future, what does that really look like?
1: So, the health workforce of the future probably looks a lot like it looks now. And I guess I say that because it's still full of human beings, still doing the best that they can with whatever it is they have at their disposal. Certainly, thinking about caring for us and trying to make the health system better. I think what will be different is that they'll be better prepared to use those tools at their disposal and they'll also be better educated and they'll be more confident. So in September last year, the health minister launched the National Digital Health Workforce and Education Roadmap. Bit of a mouthful, but it is a roadmap that we've been co-designing with the broader community for more than a year. So it really sets out the pathway to get where we need to be. It highlighted a couple of important things. So it talked about In Australia, what we need to do to shape how education and training enables the workforce and that's about realising benefits of technology, but also at it's core about recognising that people are really our health sector's most valuable assets. So that's really critical. I think just a couple of other quick points. We know that the health landscape is complex and that there's different digital health maturity levels right across it. We also know that digital health transformations already influencing traditional approaches to health service delivery, and we also know importantly that consumers and patients expect that their care providers already digitally literate and that their privacy will always be out. And I think we know this to be the case, especially now. So we've really got to take that collaborative approach to equipping the health workforce, and that really has to be done in concert with all of the stakeholders right across the system. So. It can't just be governments, it can't just be education providers, and it can't just be clinicians and consumers, and it can't just be industry. We've all really got to work together to make it happen.
0: Love it. That summarizes a lot of what we talk about on the podcast on a regular basis, Angela. So it's great alignment there in terms of the consistent themes that come through. We've got a good cohort of nurses, clinicians, carers, and clinicians, doctors working within different healthcare settings, wanting to get a better handle on the use of technology. And we talked a bit about things that need to happen at perhaps at a system or a government or a larger approach from their own perspectives, from a clinician's or a nurse's or a midwife's perspective. What are some things they could be doing to support themselves through their digital health journey?
1: There are actually a number of different things that different groups can do. I mean, there's general information out there, but if we take the nursing and midwifery cohorts just as a starting point, I think there's certainly, as they are the largest group in the health workforce, and we know that to be the case right across the globe, and we also know that workforce shortages are already critical, and obviously this has only been exacerbated throughout the pandemic. So, We need to find better ways to support nurses and midwives through their digital health journey because I firmly believe that there are very few levers that will allow us to augment this increasing gap. And obviously digital health really is one of those things. So university curriculums really need to have digital health fundamentals embedded. Health services need to really be offering different learning methods. But The biggest game changer is better integrated tools to enable nurses and midwives to focus on what's important, and that's obviously the care of their patients. But this is obviously true for all of the health workforce, and obviously we talk a lot about it, and that's definitely the holy grail. But if I just go back to your original question, which was around what can the health workforce do? Well, for nurses and midwives, they can actually check out the Nursing and Midwifery Digital Health Capability Framework. That's a national framework and like the roadmap that was launched by the health minister last year, who obviously also acknowledged the import uh, of getting the nursing and midwifery sectors better equipped to use digital health tools and technologies. So what the framework does is that it can help nurses and midwives assess their level of digital health capability. So it's helped them understand areas where they may be more proficient but it can also importantly highlight the areas where they may have gaps. They might have proficiency in the way they use technology, so they might understand their obligations around privacy and security, around data and confidentiality, but they may have some gaps in their knowledge around leadership capabilities, the importance of sponsorship and so on and so forth. So I think it's a really great tool to do that. And so it's certainly a good place to start. And if I could make a little shout out at this point to the Australasian Institute of Digital Health, who is currently working with the Australian Digital Health Agency and also a range of very key nursing and midwifery peak groups to implement the framework. So if you go to the website, if you go to the Australasian Institute of Digital Health website, you'll be able to find links to where the framework exists. So I'd really encourage everyone to get out there to start using it. The framework can work for individuals, but it can also be embedded within organisations. What's also exciting for me, having been involved in some of the early work here, is that it's now starting to get some traction internationally and we just engaging with the Irish workforce, with the Irish leadership And they are applying it within their own context. So it's getting some legs, Pete. Yeah. Nice one.
0: And so you gave some good examples in terms of what someone might find within that framework and we'll certainly put the links that you mentioned in the show notes of this episode for people to check out those resources in their own time and get that in detail. Thinking about though, when we talk around digital health capability, you mentioned the need for ensuring data is managed securely and everything. Sometimes, when people think about their digital health capability, they think, "Well, you, do I need the ability to code, whether it's write websites or do clinical coding?" Put it in context in real world. What are some of those other kind of things that determine then the digital health capability that we're talking about?
1: The way I like to describe this is thinking about it from the inside out. So, for me, as a registered nurse, for instance. I need to be a professional in the way I operate. So that's about how do I behave in this sort of online or tech environment? So for instance, my digital identity, it's about the way you may conduct yourself in the way that you use tools, but also thinking about social media and so on. So that's one aspect that's thinking about how I am as a professional in this new tech world. Well, it's not so new, but in the tech world. There's also leadership and advocacy. So how do we advocate for our patients in the world of technology? That's about ensuring that patients are appropriately protected, that their information is kept confidential, that they understand what their own rights and obligations are. But then that also stretches to, well, how, if I'm in a leadership position, how do I then best represent my organization. So how do I advocate for the adoption or the expansion or even the integration of digital health within the organization? And to do that, how will I best support my workforce to make sure that that's a success? So there's some of the things I'm referring to, in addition to those really key fundamentals, which are about data management, the life cycle of the data, data sharing, information creation and use, security, privacy, and governance, very importantly. So it's all encompassing, I think. There are a range of capabilities in there that people probably wouldn't necessarily stop and consider, like you highlighted from the outset.
0: And thinking more about some of those themes and then drilling more into, say, safety side of things, which I guess links to the governance piece, which you mentioned before, thinking less about the capability, just generally then from a safety, from a patient's perspective, are there some things that we need to be thinking about to ensure that digital health systems are indeed safer for patients moving into this more common use of technology in healthcare delivery? Very definitely.
1: There are, I think, some components that are unique, but If I abstracted a little first, I would say that it should be no different to any interaction one might have with the health system. So we know that it's a wholly unsafe place to be in many contexts or in many settings. That doesn't mean it's unsafe for everyone, but certainly there are things that make or that create more risk when we are interacting with it. And we know that technology can really help. We know that technology can help minimise or reduce those risks or errors from occurring. But we do know that when systems aren't well designed, that they're not designed for the solutions or the problems they're trying to solve, that they can create more harms. So technology is really the enabler. Obviously, that is not rocket science. It's just one aspect of it. But in the end, it still involves an interaction with, even if it's virtual, it's a clinician interacting with a patient who may or may not have a carer present. Technology just really brings that aspect of it together. So I think importantly, when we consider the governance from bits to bedside, if you like, there really needs to be a neat process in place that looks after everything that occurs from the moment that that concept is thought about to when it's actually gone into design, production, implementation, and then it's what happens thereafter. So there currently isn't really a coordinated enough governance model around the way digital health is deployed into most of our health systems. So that's not to say that those that are doing it currently, like local health districts or even at the state level, well, even federally, that they're not doing a good job. It's just that those components aren't coordinated enough. So it leaves gaps, but it also means that the sorts of important lessons that we are learning through some of those errors or risks aren't then being fed back into the system so that we actually learn from them and don't make those same mistakes again. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. And having that continuous loop of information, the ability for others to build upon, and everyone's at a different level in a different stage and can leverage off the parts that others have paved in different directions, but it's all pretty consistent. So I'm totally on the same page with you there.
1: Wonderful. And I learned quite a little bit more about this when I was conducting my research, for my Churchill Fellowship, and that was something that resonated. was It was loud and clear in regard to the sorts of things we need to be thinking about in order to solve this really
0: big problem. Tell us more about the Churchill Fellowship. The Churchill Fellowship
1: was incredible. It was 12 weeks of travel back in the days when one could travel. I consider myself to be very, very lucky that it occurred at the end of 2018. So well before we had any idea about the kind of environment we find ourselves in now. So hugely grateful to have had that opportunity. I'm not sure if the audience knows much about the fellowship, but the whole premise of it is around travel. It presents itself as a bit of an issue for those who are currently being awarded fellowships because they are in some cases having to conduct their sort of whirlwind global trips virtually. So it obviously doesn't have quite the same ring. But nevertheless, I chose the itinerary I did because I wanted to meet with people who were world leaders in the field of patient safety and patient safety governance. And I was lucky enough that being awarded the fellowship, I was able to go and visit them. So I traveled to about 10 different cities. Uh, I did meet with hundreds of clinicians, of industry, of government. Went to the hospitals, I went to health services. And wow, I went to the Texas Medical Center, and that just blew my mind. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I think naively, when I was initially researching it, I was thinking medical centers, how big can that be? But it's actually... I think it's around 9,000 beds. It's roughly 50 institutions, I think. And it's really a city. It's the largest medical city on the planet. So that was pretty wild and a pretty amazing experience. But probably what the fellowship taught me most was that people are innately kind and generous. That might not always be immediately apparent, but people were very generous with their time. They. Not only gave up their time and their expertise, but they also introduced me to others so there were those formal meetings organized but then there were the less formal more casual interactions that led to opportunities to attend other meetings or dinners even and that sort of thing so it really was pretty wonderful. but I think the key thing I took away from it is that we're all pretty similar when it comes to our the health system, so we're All trying to solve the same sorts of problems. We may have very different health systems. Obviously, the health system between the US and Australia, for example, is quite different, although some may say that it's it's starting to look more similar, worryingly, but we still have the same sorts of wicked problems. We still have difficulties integrating the patient journey from community to acute and back to community again. Interoperability is, we've got a massive issue. Difficulty in getting standards right, even implemented, but also just in the end wanting to make the system as safe as it can be and finding that difficulty and threading things back through the system in the way that would benefit most. So, there's some really great examples of people just doing incredible things in many of the environments I went to, but none of them have actually had the opportunity or rather been able to, not so much they haven't had the opportunity haven't quite got to the point where they've been able to implement that whole system coordination of digital health safety governance.
0: Tell us a bit more about the research work you were doing for it.
1: I have great interest in digital health patient safety. So I wanted to travel overseas and learn from the greats, if you will. That's not to say we don't have many greats here, but I just wanted to sort of broaden my perspective a bit. So I was exploring methods that one might employ to better coordinate digital health safety governance. So I traveled to about 10 different cities to undertake that research over a three-month period.
0: So you've come back from doing that now and reflecting on it. Were there any lessons or recommendations or things that you've taken from that experience?
1: Yes, very much so. So something I prepared earlier, Pete, is my fellowship report that I've essentially came up with nine key findings and then a set of recommendations. And the key findings really range everywhere from safety is everyone's business, and that should be obvious to everybody, but also that digital health patient safety shouldn't be niche. It should be mainstream. And I think I was trying to make that point before. So it should just be considered as part of general governance. And also we've already touched on the need for a better equipped workforce. They were just some of the findings, but then the key recommendation was really the establishment of a task force. So bringing together the set of experts, if you will, right across the digital health spectrum, working together in a trusted environment. Uh, And I think key here is being unconstrained by competing interests. So it's really about assembling this group of important But more importantly, expert people together. It's about cooperation, so providing an opportunity for those experts to share their knowledge, share their evidence and resources, and then collectively contribute to the actions and outcomes. And then finally, the collaboration around that, providing that opportunity for these people to work together, who can detect and report, remediate and disseminate information and solutions. It's giving people an opportunity to be unconstrained to offer views, offer evidence, and then feed that back into a well a feedback iteration so that effectively we're just each time like a learning health system doing better and better. So I recognize it probably sounds like Nirvana, but we're sort of not like a collaborative community almost It, it totally is, it totally is, and I think these things already exist right. We know that there are lots of collaborations, people having conversations governments, designing policies with people, implementing them, industry having views and so on. But what we don't currently have is it being, I guess, something that's been established for that purpose. It's funded to do that work. Mm. And then there is a mandate that comes out of it. That's probably the missing piece. And it's a work in progress, I would say.
0: Fascinating. But important work to do. And I think That'll be interesting to watch as that progresses. Changing tracks again a little bit, thinking about, you know, in a couple of weeks time from when we're recording this, you'll be participating in a session at the Talking Health Tech Spring Summit, which is really exciting. And I believe the session that you'll be participating in will be around the concept of health systems and providers and investing in health technology and when to appropriately invest in technology at a health systems level and when not to perhaps. So I guess there's all of those exciting kind of aspects to it there and there'll be a diverse panel that you'll be participating with. Is there anything you're looking forward to or comes to mind thinking about health systems investing or in fact not investing in technology?
1: I'm really looking forward to that panel, Pete. I'm looking forward to sitting alongside the other panelists who I'm sure will all bring different perspectives to this discussion. I believe we've got representation from different aspects of the industry, so we've got people invested in or investing directly in the build of clinical information systems. I think we might even have a health economist who would be no doubt critical to any discussion around, well, investment. And look, nothing screams scarce resources like a global pandemic, right? I think what's interesting to me, I mean, it makes sense to think about, okay, well, we need to be investing more in the virtual space. I think that's a given and I think that's already happening. We know that the health system's already responded in this way, but we probably don't have enough investment around in this space is what we need to make that really succeed. So I guess going the evidence base around what's been done in the last 18 months, There was a lot of evidence gathering dust, probably in the lead up to the pandemic. We knew about the benefits of virtual, but we didn't or couldn't scale it. Well, and and we could never have imagined, obviously, what's happened as a result of COVID-19. But I think that there still needs to be work done in regard to that. So we want to make sure that we're doing the right things, that we're supporting our patients, we're supporting clinicians in the use of it to make sure that the models are fit for purpose. So there is some good work already going on about that, but I think I'm with that, but I think we need to see that grow. But I think for me, and it won't surprise you, it's not so much investing in the tech, it's investing in the workforce. It may not be strictly a wicked problem, but everyone talks about how important it is to have a capable and confident health workforce. Everyone talks about it, but no one really wants to own the problem. And we kind of need someone to own a problem. By that, I mean some of the funding of it, but we probably really need to better articulate what are each industry's role in this and how might they then apply apply that investment accordingly. So new tools, new tricks, always needed. We know that there's a lot of great innovation occurring in the AI and machine learning space, but what are we going to do to better help and support our health workforce so that we can actually start realising the benefits.
0: Yeah. And realising it now, I think, too, because one solution I hear often is, well, We'll just wait till the next generation of clinicians come through that are in a different mindset who are internet first and all of that. But there's a lot of healthcare to deliver between now and then, and there's a lot of immediate problems to solve. So there is a lot of white space that needs to be addressed. So I can't wait to speak more about particularly that session at the Spring Summit in the coming weeks. And I'll put some details in the show notes this episode for people to check out more. Hey, Angela, look, to close out this conversation, for those that are interested in keeping an eye on what you're doing and what you're up to, is there anything we should be looking out for in the coming months or what are you up to? What's keeping you busy over the coming months?
1: I'm currently lucky enough to be doing a little bit of work with the TGA. So the TGA obviously is a very busy enterprise currently with many competing priorities, particularly in regard to the COVID-19 space. I'm certainly not speaking on behalf of the TGA today, but what I would say is that I'm doing some exciting work with Fed in their digital health reform space, particularly clinical decision support reforms, but more broadly around SAMD or software as a medical device. So watch this space there. There's going to be some updated information available over the coming months. So that'll be good. Yeah, I'm currently stuck in hotel quarantine. So I'm pretty much looking forward to getting out of here. It's day six so obviously by the time this goes to air i'll hopefully be well clear of it but some, it's certainly something to add to the experience of what it is to live in 2020
0: 2021 yeah. so. Yeah, amazing. Looking forward to all those updates, particularly about software as a medical device, clinical decision support, TGA stuff, but also just generally catching up at the Spring Summit in September. So look, Angela, I really appreciate you making the time, particularly during hotel quarantine, and stay safe and look forward to catching up soon. All the best. Brilliant. Thanks, Pete. Good to be with you and uh, can't wait for the summit. Thanks for listening to the show.